Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things, and sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he said he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless, unless we are to go and buy for all of these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they, said, they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. by talking about everybody's favorite subject, terms and conditions. 
we laugh because although they're meant to try to help us make an informed decision and give us clarity, we usually just skip over them. I know what client and provider mean, we tell ourselves. I can't change the conditions anyway, and I want to use this product or make this update, so what difference does it make if I read it? But if you're one of those unlucky ones, like someone I once knew, those terms may come back to haunt you. This person wasn't aware that they couldn't have two people logged into the same software at the same time. And one day, they found themselves unable to log in with no way of getting the money back that they had initially spent on the program. It was in the terms. They thought their family was the client, and it turns, turns out each individual was a client. Sometimes it pays to read the terms. See, words matter. Two people can say the exact same thing, but if their definition of the terms are different, they mean two completely different things. And if we don't understand the terms for an app, we may find ourselves locked out of it and having to find another. But today we're talking about something much more serious. The Bible is chock full of warnings to make sure that we test the genuineness of our faith. That there will be those who one day will stand before God and believe they are saved, but be denied entry. Throughout the centuries, for instance, Christians have gone by many names. Citizens of the kingdom of God, disciples, saints, the flock of the good shepherd, followers of the Nazarene, Christians, which literally means little Christ, or what the earliest Christians called themselves, followers of the way. Our most common terms we use today are Christians and believers. But when we say Christian, do we mean little Christs? Or do we just mean someone who goes to church and says they love Christ? When we say believer, do we mean someone that believes and submits their life to Jesus because of that belief? Or just someone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What's the difference, we might say? But Jesus said in John 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And as we saw last week, when the legion of demons sees Jesus, they respond with more of a certain kind of belief than even the disciples did on the boat. This is why James writes, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. I guess maybe we should slow down and read the terms and conditions. See, just like a friend who tells you to try an app that they like or subscribe to a newsletter they enjoy, you may have first been introduced to Christianity by someone who shared with you the equivalent of how easy it was to install or how the free version didn't even have ads. But your friend or your parents or even your pastor aren't the ones who ultimately let you into the gates of heaven. 
don't solely rely on their explanation of the terms. It is Christ who knows his flock, and it is he who determines who enters the kingdom. And his terms are not open for negotiation. This isn't a mortgage where you can send a counteroffer and say, I'd like to keep the basketball goal in the mower. We have nothing to offer him that isn't his already. He's made us a gracious and undeserved offer to be made sons through Christ. You can take it or leave it, but you cannot change it. So you'd better understand what you're getting yourself into. As we read a few weeks ago, Jesus, in his hometown synagogue, declared the foretold kingdom to have begun and demonstrated it by traveling and preaching through the the countryside, healing and casting out demons. This movement sounds pretty great, thought many. Where do I sign up? But it isn't them who Jesus decides to let be his early adopters, the first few let into the kingdom. He calls the twelve and says to them, follow me. Simple enough. We all know what that means, right? Well, maybe we should define terms. In the original language here, follow me literally means to be in the same way with or to share the same path. Previously, Jesus spoke both to the disciples and to the crowds on the Sermon on the Mount, defining what that life would look like. In the previous few weeks, the disciples have walked alongside Jesus. They've seen now and not merely heard what that looks like. And then in today's passage, they're called to hold up their end of the agreement, to actually follow or share the same path with Christ. And they're contrasted with three different groups who seek Jesus, but on their terms. And the agreement the crowds try to offer Jesus will be rejected by him. And dejected, they're going to turn on him in Jerusalem. How do you know today that you're not merely a seeker, but a follower? That's what we're going to touch on this morning. We'll look at three aspects of Jesus' path that his followers are to partake in from three different scenes in this passage. So let's begin with our first section, verses 1 through 9. In the first six verses, we see that shift I mentioned earlier, where there was one man in chapter 4 proclaiming the kingdom to have come. Now there are 12 more. Where there was one demonstrating authority over demons and curing diseases, there are now 12 more. And where there was one who had no place to lay his head, who received the hospitality of the repentant and condemned the unrepentant and heart of heart, there are now 12 more. It was back in the terms on the Sermon on the Mount when he said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. This passage is meant to show us through the sending out of the apostles that true followers proclaim like Jesus. Instead of drawing the 12 together for more one-on-twelve time, Jesus is now for the first time sending them out. What does this have to do with us, though, we might ask? Am I supposed to go be homeless and track down demons to cast out? 
How am I to proclaim like Jesus? Well, I would argue that this passage is actually a foreshadowing or a soft opening, so to speak, of the Great Commission. Go with my authority and proclaim the kingdom. Just as with the apostles here, there are things we have to trust him to provide us with as needed in the trenches, things that would weigh us down or betray our heart is distrustful of him or divided from his mission should we hold on to them. Those things are going to look different for different people and even for the same person in different times. In chapter 22 of this same book, Jesus references today's passage and says, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. And he said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. Different operations call for different gear, but the mission we partake in is the same as the apostles. Go and proclaim the kingdom. Do we trust him to outfit us with, for what he's calling us to? Or are we unwilling to go forward until he gives us what we think we need first? As we move on to verse 5, Jesus expressly reminds them that they will face rejection just like he did. There will be those who don't receive us, who will not weep in grateful repentance, but deride and spurn us and watch us closely to try to catch us in an air. Jesus had made this clear again back on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in the kingdom of heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. This kind of bold going out is quite the opposite of what we see Herod doing in verses 7 through 9, though, isn't it? Will true followers proclaim like Jesus, seekers remain perplexed by him. Herod seeks to see Jesus, not to learn how to follow him and declare alongside the twelve the kingdom of God, but to make sure this Jesus won't be a threat to his earthly kingdom. We learn from Mark 6 that John the ba- with John the Baptist, Herod was angry while he was a public threat to him, calling out his sinful relationship with his sister-in-law. But once he had John behind bars, it says, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. It was only once again when his public image might suffer that he ordered John to be executed. What I want us to understand is seekers may have quiet times. They may pray. They may come to church. They may recognize that Jesus has authority through what they've seen him do. They may say his words are good and enjoy the blessings that come from living in a family that follows some of his teachings. Seekers may be intrigued or perplexed by what they see or hear, but they don't want to fully partake or submit. But followers don't just gather around Jesus or around their Bibles. 
They don't contain his message to certain parts of their life and calendar, scared of what he might do to them if he got out. They're sent out themselves to proclaim like Jesus, to partake in this great calling and the great difficulty of the path he's blazed. Seekers often want to protect their authority and possessions from Jesus and yet have him to listen to when they want. But followers are willing to do everything he calls them to, receiving their authority from Jesus to partake in his mission. Let's move on to our second section today, verses 10 through 17. Although followers are sent out and can't always be gathered together, they do come back together to recognize what the power of Christ is doing through their lives and in a unique way to proclaim together the kingdom. If the last section is a foreshadowing of the Great Commission, this section is a foreshadowing of Pentecost. In verses 11 and 12, the crowds are gathered and in need of the gospel of the kingdom, of healing and of sustenance, spiritually and physically. Just as the world, Jew and Gentile alike, was in Jerusalem that day. Now remember from verses 1 and 2 of this passage, Jesus has already given the 12 power and authority and a call to proclaim the kingdom. So when they recognize the crowd that they've been living among is in need of food to eat and shelter, he says to the apostles, you give them something to eat. Your turn. But we have so little, they say in verse 13. How can we do what you've called us to? How do you want us to do it? Just like they were doing at Pentecost when they were praying in the upper room. I can only imagine this must have also been what the apostles felt like when 3,000 people repented that day. And when these people who had sold everything or had nothing came to the apostles for spiritual and physical provision. When even beyond Jerusalem, there's a whole world that needed to be freed from slavery to idolatry and demons, a world twisted and perverted needing to be straightened. How are we going to do this? We have so little. And it can be tempting for us to say the same thing when we look at the world today. What can this small church in Bonner Springs do to accomplish this great task that God has called us to? I think the answer can be found both in our passage today and in the parallel at Pentecost. In today's passage, Jesus takes all the disciples have, but he multiplies it to be more than enough. At Pentecost, instead of Jesus breaking the meager provision of the apostles, praying and preaching the kingdom of God, Peter steps up, leading this ragtag private prayer meeting, and with the authority and power given to him, he prays, proclaims the kingdom, and later helps oversee the spiritual and physical nourishment of this new flock. Jesus' call to the apostles and to us in this section is, you give them something to eat, both physically and spiritually, 
like Christ does. Here's what I have, we might answer. What, what can it do? His response is, I will take it all, but I will make it more than enough. He's saying true followers don't only proclaim like Jesus, true followers provide like Jesus, who offered up all he had to take on flesh and serve us when we were in need. Followers provide a message and a meal, both physically and spiritually. What other way is there to truly provide for both physical and spiritual beings like men? As Jesus foreshadowed before in the Sermon on the Mount, followers are to love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. As you would have others do for you, do so to them. Followers don't just go out into the world to receive hospitality. They gather what little they have and show hospitality. And God multiplies what they give to reach the uttermost ends of the earth. Now, not all in today's crowd were true followers. We see in chapter 6 and also in John 6, that many of those who sought Jesus here, sought healing or sought to see the amazing things Jesus was doing, or sought the bread he gave, but didn't truly seek to follow him. And those people, when the bread stops, when they're not healed, when Jesus refuses to give them a sign, are willing to turn on him in a heartbeat, as we're going to see later. And yet, Knowing that these tares are amongst the wheat in the crowd, Jesus doesn't deny them the message or the provision. The rain falls on the wicked and the righteous alike. True followers provide like Jesus, while seekers remain mere receivers. Today, we live in societies largely free of the kinds of human sacrifice, demon worship, racism, slavery, drunkenness, idolatry, rape, fear, pillaging, witchcraft, and hatred that were the standard in human history. And this is a direct result of the slow, steady advance of the gospel. But you don't have to be a follower or even like those changes to reap the benefits of them. You may have tasted the bread. You may have grown up in a Christian household or a community that lives by some Christian morals and been blessed by members of your local church community, but tasting the bread does not mean you are a follower. Do you provide like Jesus? Do you seek what Jesus can do for you, or do you recognize what Jesus has done and seek to do the same? Is your meager provision, his to break and give to others. How, when, and for whom he does that is up to him and is going to be different for each of us, but is it his to do so? That's what being a follower means. It's in the terms. And you know what? Some of those in the crowd are followers. 
We're going to see that in the next chapter when we get another sending out, this time of 72. There are followers in the gathering of those seeking Jesus. But 72 is a lot less than 5,000 men. So that leads us to our final section of today's passage, verses 21 through 27. By now the apostles have been told that to follow Jesus means to proclaim like him and to provide both physically and spiritually with what little they have left. What more could he call them to partake in? What more could he ask of them? Here we read that true followers follow Jesus to the cross. True followers lose their lives like Jesus. When he says, he who would come after me, that literally means in the original language, he who would go behind me. And his path is leading to the cross. If you are following him, that is where it goes. He hinted at as much on the Sermon on the Mount, when he, and now he says it clearly. If you follow me, they will do to you what they did to the prophets of old. The people Christ spoke to, including the apostles, expected the physical earthly reign of Christ to happen in a very particular way. And it could be tempting in verse 27 when he tells them that they, some of them would live to see the kingdom to think in the next couple of years they'd be reclining with him in Jerusalem, the Romans being expelled from Judea. But Jesus' plan, through his trampling of death and of Satan, means something greater. It means even though they didn't get to recline with him in a couple years in Jerusalem, they will be with him in the new Jerusalem for endless years. Although they didn't see the Romans expelled from Judea in their lifetimes, actually quite the opposite, we have seen Rome expelled from this earth, along with all of the perversions that came with it. One day, we will see members of every previously divided kingdom and people sanctified and included in the kingdom of God. That kingdom that started with one man saying that the prophecies had finally been fulfilled in his hometown synagogue is now spread all throughout the world. It starts like a mustard seed, right? And our march to victory, like that of Christ, lies through giving up our lives. You cannot try to follow Jesus and save your life. Jesus can ask anything of you and you must give it. That's what it means to follow him. No holding back. You don't just offer him your stuff to do with as he wishes. You offer him yourself. That's what Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, meant when he wrote, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. When he wrote that, he was actually reflecting on this exact passage. And he did die. He died to himself by waking early, 
making sure he was in the word of God, singing hymns and being reminded of his place in redemptive history. He died by encouraging and teaching other households to do the same. He died by writing and teaching what was offensive to the Nazis when it became very clear that they were out of alignment with the truth. He died by deciding to go back to Germany after a brief stint in the United States where he could have been safe until after the war. He died by aiding a plot to overthrow Hitler and fight the evil he was seeing in his country. And he died when he was hung naked, his agony likely prolonged, as that was the custom in Flossenburg concentration camp, where he led other believers in worship, and though engaged, never had the opportunity to be married, dying just five months before the war's end. His final message sent to George Bell in England said this, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. That's what following looks like. True followers lose their lives like Jesus did, while seekers try to save their lives like only Jesus can. But they can't. No matter how hard they try, they will lose it. But if you lose it for him, he can save it. And he will. Being a follower doesn't mean you just proclaim like him or you provide like him. You daily deny yourself, your desire, and put it to death, carrying the cross. We live in a world today that will tell you what you really need is to be in touch with those desires, with who you are deep down and what you want. They'll tell you you need to get away from others' expectations of you and the ways they hold you back from your own self-actualization. They'll tell you if you just break free from anything that would hold you back and fulfill what you want, be who you are, you may lose your family or your friends or your faith, but you'll gain yourself. And in gaining yourself, you will gain the world. But what good is it to gain the world and lose your soul? Some people even believe in some twisted way that Jesus is the tool to bring about the fulfillment of their desires. They think, if I lead others to Jesus, explaining away his perplexing bits, and we all share our food together, partaking in his blessing, feels pretty nice. I find this pretty fulfilling. But what about when following Jesus means denying yourself as you leave your family to be a missionary overseas, never to see them again? What about when following Jesus means dying to yourself and going hungry so someone else can eat your food, someone who takes more than they give? What about when following Jesus means dying to yourself and never getting married so you can fulfill the specific call he has on your life? Or what about when following Jesus means getting married, serving and loving your spouse, having children, and working to raise them in the fear of God and to love righteousness? Those are some daily crosses to bear. 
If you seek Jesus because you think he offers the most rousing story or because you think he offers the best blessings, you're going to be shocked when you find out he also asks for the highest price from his followers. And many then turn away, as many did in his time. Who would do that, we might ask? Who would rely on God for their provision, proclaiming like Jesus, providing like Jesus, and dying like Jesus? That doesn't sound like the terms I was told when they said, pray a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart, and if you're confident enough, raise your hand. That pastor lied to me. My parents didn't live like that, and they sure didn't explain it like that. Well, if that's the case, that's on them to answer to God for. But that is not a justification for you to change the terms. You are in or you're out. But before you make your decision to jump ship, let me share with you another term. Christ. You may have noticed we skipped that section, verses 18 through 20. We use this term like it's some sort of last name for Jesus, but what it actually means in the original language is anointed one. When Peter calls Jesus the Christ in verse 20, it is a recognition that like David, Jesus has been chosen as king and will replace the current king and kingdom of this world. He's not just a herald or a high-up official in the coming kingdom. He is the king. He's the one foretold from the line of David who will make a way for man to re-enter into right relationship with God, who would be the great high priest to end our need for insufficient high priests, our great sacrifice to replace our insufficient sacrifice. And if you want Jesus to be your sacrifice, he must be your king. If you want to follow Christ, he gets to tell you how to live, he gets to tell you how to provide, and he gets to tell you how to die and what you must give up. And when Jesus says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God, he isn't talking about his second coming. I want us to understand this. In context, Peter is saying, I believe you're the anointed king who will one day overthrow the kingdom of this world and reign over all creation, returning us and it to what it was meant to be, but even better. And Jesus says, you will see that in your lifetime. And he did. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. When Peter preaches at Pentecost, he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Peter is realizing he has lived to see it like Jesus promised. He's not just the anointed king. Jesus is now reigning as the king. We don't merely proclaim a coming kingdom. That's what the apostles did earlier in this passage and what John the Baptist did. 
We proclaim Jesus is king. We call for the world to surrender and recognize the victory Christ has already achieved, the kingdom over which he's already reigning. We preach what we call the gospel, which in the original language literally means a proclamation to a people that you have been defeated and now have a new ruler, submit to him, and glory in the blessings that come with being under his rule. So here's a bonus point for you today. True followers recognize Jesus is the king. You can't escape it. You can't just not use the app and live without it or try another one. You can either submit to him and die to yourself or choose to submit to yourself and die apart from him, the source of all good things, who is bringing about a kingdom where the measly meal you share here will result in baskets of bread for you to gather, where one life laid down like a seed will produce a hundredfold, where sorrow and death and pain and injustice will be no more. He's the king of that. That's why we would go behind him. That's why we would be in the same way with him. That's why following Jesus is worth it. Some thought that Jesus was John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets of old that had risen. And some today think that Jesus was just a good teacher. And for those who think that is the case, this is too high a cost. But not for those that he's chosen to be his followers. Those who by the Spirit and Word know and believe this truth. So now you know, or now we've revisited the terms and conditions. But as C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory, the cross comes before the crown and tomorrow is a Monday morning. Where we will each be sent to proclaim what each of us has for Christ to break and offer and how each of us are called to die will look different. And I want to leave what that looks like for your household to the Spirit today, rather than trying to give you some sort of list. But I do want to speak to two different groups before we leave today. To the true follower who's moved by today's passage to realize their walk has recently consisted too much of seeking a pricked conscience rather than proclaiming the kingdom seeking blessings from Jesus rather than providing like him, and holding on to areas of your life rather than laying them down at his feet. I say this. Sometimes as followers, we plod forward in our king's path drenched and sick. Sometimes we fall back for the cost we see ahead. That's what the apostles did at the crucifixion. What even Peter did, who we see from this passage, knew why following Jesus was worth it. And once Jesus was buried, they thought the proclaiming, the providing, and the call to die were over. That that chance had gone. 
But when Jesus showed back up, demonstrating his power over death, that he was still bringing about the kingdom of heaven, and that those who follow in his path may seem to lose their life, but will save it. When Jesus showed back up and showed that, every one of them boldly lived, served, and died like him when they were given another chance. Go and do likewise. To those today who are truly seekers, who are attracted by what Christ looks like or does, but would rather just receive from him than be a follower, I wish that you could taste with us fully the first fruits of the kingdom that you have only experienced firsthand, or secondhand. How I wish that you would know the one who knows you and died for you. The one who would lead you to die to yourself and join his kingdom. Don't be like Herod, who sought Jesus only to make sure he wasn't a threat to his kingdom. Don't be like those in the crowds who settled for the blessings of being near Jesus and were healed and fed temporarily only to be separated from him forever. And don't be like those who desire to come after Jesus but are unwilling to give up their lives only to lose them anyway in the end. There's only one path that leads to true life, but it leads through the cross with you denying yourself and walking in his way. The offer still stands. Follow me, he says. Those of us who have walked it can promise you it's worth it. Please pray with me.